Thanks for tuning in to Women in Product Marketing. I'm your host, Mary Sheehan with Adobe. In this episode, I speak with Julia Zatar, who leads product marketing at Loom. We talk all about messaging and product launches. I love Julia's perspective of testing messaging as art and science, and how having a tiering system helps distinguish between different types of product launches. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K, the leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. Clue helps you collect, curate, and distribute competitive insights to enable sales and revenue teams to win more deals. Share real-time insights across your organization with Clue's dynamic battle cards, delivered everywhere your sales reps live, and allowing them to contribute insights from the field. It's competitive strategy as a key lever of revenue. Elevate your role and outmaneuver, outplay, and outmatch the competition with Clue. This show is produced by Shareberg, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers for your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to Shareberg.com. All right, let's do this. Hello, and welcome to Women in Product Marketing. I'm here today with Julia Zatar, the head of product marketing at Loom. Julia has had a fascinating career that we'll talk about today. She has worked in government, women's empowerment, and something called edutainment that we'll get into a little bit more. Welcome, Julia. So excited to have you today. So happy to be here and to be chatting with you today, Mary. Right, well, let's start off with my favorite question for this season, which is who inspires you? So I feel like I have a long list here, but I love to be a little bit controversial and say Kim Kardashian. I think people kind of have underestimated her forever and that has driven her. I don't necessarily like watch the show and find the stuff interesting, but as a businesswoman, I find her really fascinating. And I think she has an amazing work ethic and is just like knows herself so well that she's been able to like engineer her career in a really good way. That's such a good answer. And I totally agree. It's incredibly impressive to see all the pots she has in every, every sector of the world, it seems like. So I think I agree with that. Even if I don't watch the show either, I think she's someone that has really risen the ranks and been able to accomplish a lot. So well done. <laughs> well done, Kim. <laughs> Disclaimer, I don't agree with everything that she does, but I do think she's an interesting person to analyze for sure. I agree. All right. Well, let's talk about your job at Loom. I'd love to hear more. Yes. So I'm the head of product marketing. Officially, that's director title. We have a team of three currently and hiring a fourth. So five of us all together. I joined Loom at the beginning of 2020, pre-pandemic, and it's two and a half years later and more excited than ever to be here. I actually have lifecycle marketing sitting in my team as well. So we've got two product marketers and a lifecycle marketer, and we work across the whole business. So supporting product, some biz ops projects, and obviously the sales team as well. And so I'm embarrassed to admit this, but I recently learned about Loom only this spring. I think it was a presentation your VP of product was giving at a Reforge course I was taking, and I was just blown away by the product. Could you tell us a little bit more about what it does? Because I will not do it justice, but I've never seen a demo of a product where I have told everyone they need to actually go get it right away. (laughs) So can you tell us a little bit more about what Loom actually is? 
Yes. So high level, it's an async video platform. But the way I like to describe it is, you know, everyone's familiar with Zoom, Slack, email, and Loom is kind of like the fourth mode of communication. So you record your screen, you share that recording of you talking through your work with a link, and you don't have to schedule a meeting. You can just send your message in a really fast and human way to either like your team, your boss, internally or externally. Yeah. So I like to think of it as like a fourth mode of communication that just is very effective in the new world that we're in. So a lot of people are distributed. Even if you're in a large office, you're technically distributed. You might not be able to walk over to your colleague to say something. So this is like a fast and human way to communicate. I think it's so cool because especially in the virtual world that we're in, the scheduling of a meeting is so daunting. And even to have like that five minute sync that you might've used to have at the water cooler, it's so hard to get on someone's calendar. And you're like, I just want to tell Will this one thing that's going to take me like 20 minutes to type up on Slack. So I think it's just so cool that you guys have found a way in this new world that we're living in the hybrid virtual world to be able to have a product that speaks so well to it. I know it was, it came about before, but it seems like there's so many applications for it now. And I'm a really big fan of it. So love it. <laughs> yeah, I like to call it like the virtual tap on the shoulder. Ooh, there we go. I like that. <laughs> the cool part, like without going into too much of a sidebar, is that as you said, it, the application in the kind of distributed world is really good. But I like to think of it as well as a, it's respecting people's time. Yes. Because your shoulder tap could be convenient for you, but you're disrupting someone else's flow. So this allows like the person who's getting the tap on the shoulder to respond when they have a moment that's free. And so in that way, Loom respects your time and the other person's time. It's so cool. Yeah. And I feel like what I really liked about it too, is I think when I saw the demo, it was on a Google doc. So they included a link to a loom within the comments. So it's kind of in that flow. You're talking about respecting time. I'm already in the flow reviewing these comments and, oh, there was something that needed a little bit more information or a little bit more context. So here's Megan sending me a loom so I can be able to read and respond or watch and respond to that then in the context of that. So anyways, it's just, it's really cool. And I haven't seen a new product like that in a while that I've wanted to geek out on so much. So I was really excited to talk to you about this today. We love it. And before we get into all the product marketing stuff, I wanted to talk a little bit about your edutainment career. And I believe it's called Women Interrupted was a startup that you had a few years ago. And we were just kind of joking about before it might come back to life after this show. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Because the concept is something that is really cool. For sure. So it's women uninterrupted. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) That makes more sense. So I met this fabulous woman, Carla, through work back in the day. And we kind of got together. We both had a background in communication and storytelling. She actually was an actor. I do improv. But we also had a career in communication. So I started out in PR. She media trains people. And we were thinking, you know, obviously there was a lot of conversation at the time as there is today around women in the workforce. And we were kind of brainstorming what would be an alternative approach to empowering women. 
because there's so many organizations out there. And I think like Lean In that Sheryl Sandberg wrote was really big at the time. And we kind of looked to our own backgrounds and thought, well, storytelling is really powerful. And the stories don't have to be about being a woman. It's just about being human. And then, you know, if it happens to be a woman, that can be inspiring to other women. So we came up with the idea of almost like a TED Talk style organization, but for women. And so we launched Women Uninterrupted. We did a huge conference. Around 200 people came to the Oakland Museum and we curated the speakers and we had about six really interesting and diverse speakers. Some people spoke specifically about work. Some people just talked about like a traumatic life event or an inspiring life event. And we kind of focused on our skill set, which was make them look really good, make their talk really effective and entertaining. And in that way, just these interesting stories told by women are a way of empowering other women and engaging other women. And so we had planned to build like an actual online platform out of it. And we never did in the end as these things go, but it was a fun idea and it did resonate. Like the conference went really well and people just thought it was really fun and engaging. And I think indirectly that is empowering as opposed to specific like strategies, as I said to you before, like how to sit at the boardroom table, et cetera. So yeah, it was cool. That's amazing. I just love hearing about that. And we were talking earlier, just a way for people to express their authenticity without yeah, having the laundry list of tactics to be a professional woman in the workplace. It seems like a refreshing take. So I really hope you guys get it going again. I'd love to attend in the future. No pressure. <laughs> yeah, I'm actually meeting up with Carla. So I'll let her know that we chatted about it. Amazing. Well, let's talk about some of the product marketing topics that I know you are an expert at. Love to pick your brain a bit. So you've done a couple of AMAs with ShareBird, and that is a really great way to be able to connect the dots and get some Q&As answered. But I wanted to kind of bring it to life a little bit more here. So for messaging, let's start off with what has been the most useful mechanism that you have actually used to test messaging? I get this question a lot, and I'm really interested to hear and how you think about it. Definitely. Yeah, I think this one is definitely an art and a science. So interestingly, we are going through a process of testing our homepage messaging right now. So I would say like the art side of it is sort of your gut instinct, your experience, doing some competitor research, seeing what's out there, understanding your audience, and just like instinctively knowing what's going to resonate. And so like that part is really important and you can't really test it, but not everyone has that skill. And I think like that is where you start. But then as you get more sophisticated, there are kind of like tools you can use to actually test it. So there are qualitative and quantitative ways that you can do it. What we've done most at Loom is user research and surveys. So you can kind of do more qualitative ones where there's just the audience that you send the survey to is bigger. The survey is more scientific in, you know, it has more kind of like yes, no answers or a scale, or you actually do kind of more qualitative interviews where you test like a landing page and you just have to, in a way, that's a bit of art as well, because you have to synthesize that in your own way and interpret the way people react to the messaging. The other kind 
kind of art and science, a mix of those would be really staying close to your sales team. So they're the ones who are frontline speaking to customers and they're doing it frequently enough that they can give you a lot of nuanced feedback. So for example, right now we have a big internal project on ROI messaging that the product marketing team is leading. So Loom is a new behavior and we were like, how do we succinctly communicate that Loom is useful? And it was like, interesting that you hadn't heard of it, right? And that when you saw a demo, you kind of had the aha moment. But if you don't see a demo, you just read our website. For example, what can we communicate that kind of gets you to understand quickly like why this is useful? So we've come up with ROI messaging. And an example of one of those proof points is reduced meetings. So that one is... You can even gut instinct know that that one's going to resonate. We all have Zoom fatigue. No one likes meetings. No one liked meetings before the pandemic. We hate them more even now. So that's like a message that's really resonating. Another one that we have is one that we're like right now we're calling scale knowledge. So Loom allows you to document knowledge, right? I'm sending you a message, but at the same time, I'm documenting what I'm saying so that I can reuse that Loom. If someone else asks me the same question, I can send it to them. We have a thing called Loom HQ, which is sort of our video system of record. And the search is really powerful. So like a new person could search and search something and my video would come up. So in that way, you're like scaling knowledge or, you know, if you had a meeting, you could, there's kind of a limit to the amount of people you can have join a meeting. But if you record a loom about a certain project kickoff, anyone in your organization could go watch that. And so you're scaling knowledge. But it was interesting when we were rolling these ROI proof points out to our sales team, one guy on our team was like, how do I position that to a customer? And they immediately said like scale knowledge just means nothing. And so that's one that where there isn't a real science to this, but we kind of brainstormed some alternative ways to say scale knowledge. And he is manually kind of like testing those for us. And we have a feedback loop where we have a Slack channel where he kind of says like, okay, this is actually the words that this customer uses to describe this kind of, because it's a new way of communicating, there isn't really a way to describe like, okay, you scale your answer because you document it, you know? So I would say that one's very kind of like manual and, and that's just how, especially when it's in a product like Loom where it's a new behavior, it's kind of like trial and error a little bit. That's really clever to connect the dots back to sales. And I like the kind of real-time feedback in the Slack channel too. I've done sales and marketing councils before where we've kind of test-driven first call decks, for example, or even a website update and things like that. But that's super helpful both for the input of, hey, these are the words they're using and what's really resonating with the proof points. This is how I get my foot in the door. And also they're going to hate that scaled knowledge is meaningless. Get out of here with your marketing speak. So that is a really good one that actually I don't hear come up a lot in terms of testing. So that's really great. And you're right. It is a lot of art and science. I think a lot of people wish it was just all quant, but there's always, I mean, it's what's going to react and get someone to be delighted enough to want to take that call with your salesperson and do the demo. That copy has to really drive them in. And so working on that messaging, it's not always just you're not able to always look at it quantitatively and you have to have a little bit of that sparkle in it. Yeah. And then the last one, which is like the most scientific, is kind of like A-B testing on the website and in email. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have Lifecycle sitting on my team and we're only just getting good at A-B testing, like subject lines and CTAs in email. And we do like beyond A-B testing, we do like ABC and things like that. But that is the most kind of scientific way. And you instantly see like what's getting more clicks which is really fun because it's, you know, you you can kind of start to gain things. And the same for the website. So we're back to the ROI messaging that we are testing. We have four ROI proof points and we're kind of circulating them on the homepage and testing which one drives most conversion. The challenging thing is just to come back to the art and the science is Sometimes these tests work in the short term, but they can misposition your company over time. And so that's why you just have to keep revisiting them. And you don't want to test your overall positioning too much because then you expose people to like very different ways of describing your company, which isn't what you want to do. You want to always be consistent because that's the like most powerful thing. So yeah, it's definitely not easy to be sure about (laughs) which direction to go in, which is why I always say that the gut instinct part is important because at the end of the day, there's just no perfect way to test this. Yeah, absolutely. And then once you get to a point where you're satisfied with your testing or gut instinct or however you come to this messaging conclusion, what do you think are some sticky ways to communicate that internally? Because I do see one of the biggest problems with messaging are changing tack of a ship that's been going for years, especially if you're doing a broader kind of repositioning product or project. So what are some ways that have been successful for you? Yeah. So I would say there's two sides of it. One is like the mechanics and the logistics of how you roll it out and repetition has a role to play there. And then the second thing is like how you position it. And I think what works with customers, social proof, what works internally, kind of like some sort of data or qualitative data as well. So in terms of the mechanics of rolling it out, we kind of have a loose process. We create a document. We use Notion. We also do use Dex, but if it's kind of like bulky messaging, for example, our corporate messaging or even this ROI messaging, we actually create a doc because there's a lot of narrative and background and we want people to have the full picture. So we create the doc and then we usually roll it out in a live session. So I do think that drawing people's attention to it in a live session is powerful, even though we're an async company or product. And that allows people to ask questions and you can even like iterate after that first session. But then we always record that or we record a shorter version in Loom and upload it to our Loom HQ, which is a self-serve kind of like video system of record where people can find things. But after you've launched it, how do you make sure people continue to use it? So I would say we're still working on getting good at this, although there's an element of sales enablement in the product marketing team. I think for it to be really effective, you need a sales enablement role that sits in the sales and revenue team that is just a bit more tactical and like making sure that new reps are reading this stuff, that there's some regular touch points where it's discussed. So we do do like monthly need to know sessions where we'll bring up documents over and over again, but we still find that like people don't watch the loom or people have their video off during a Zoom call. So there's, we haven't figured out a way to do it like a hundred percent, but I think in terms of, so that's just like the mechanics and you can always optimize that. You're never going to get perfect at that. 
But the other part is, or what do you actually say in those meetings or how do you structure the document? And I think having some sort of commentary around how it was effective when you tested it, or for example, we're getting a lot of tweets of users that are seeing the ROI messaging in the product and they're just like really excited by it. So just always bringing it back to the customer and showing that it works. And that's what sales cares about, right? Like, does this work? Does this help me sell my deal or close my deal? So I think your job internally is the same as externally. You still have to position and like sell it to your internal stakeholders and social proof works externally and it works internally. And then any data that you do have from the A-B testing also just helps you tell that story more effectively. That's great. I like the positive reinforcement of the virtuous circle at the end there too, showing them that it's working and following up with that. That's awesome. Switching gears a little bit, I wanted to talk to you a bit about product launches. So one topic that for those of us that have been in product marketing a while, we usually have a way to do this, but I think is harder for newer product marketers to grasp is really about how do you distinguish between different types of launches? So you'll come into a new position, you see this huge roadmap of all these features, you're tasked with launching the products and features, how do you go about making sense of it all? And when they're not all created equal, frankly. Absolutely. Yeah. So we have tiering system, essentially. We have four tiers of product launches and it's kind of like a two by two matrix where you can ask yourself a couple of questions to determine which quadrant it goes into. So one being a really big product launch where you put in all your resources and you make it big and loud and pretty for lack of a better word. And that is relevant for what we call like an innovation. So is this something truly new that would attract new customers that is just interesting to the market? Like would the press cover it because it's so interesting? So that usually is like, would press cover it? That's a tier one launch. Tier two would be, this will materially move things for our customers. It's kind of new, but maybe the press won't cover it. We still want to make like a decent amount of noise about it, but it's not like a new innovation. And then three and four are sort of like a little bit more table stakes features. Maybe it's something that like you should have had a year ago that your competitors already have and you want people to know about it because you want them to use it, but you don't need to like do the whole, you know, all the bells and whistles. So that would be a tier two. And then tier one could be, we literally just do a change log. People will probably discover it in the product. We don't really need to like say a lot about this. We might do a tweet and a change log about it. So I think the reality is it's not a perfect system, but it directionally helps you initially. And it's a conversation between product marketing and product usually, and you can involve sales in it as well if you need their opinion on whether this will like resonate with customers. So I would say like just having that tiering system and you can find it online. People have, this isn't like anything unique. A lot of companies just use this to help determine like how big the launch is. The other reality of especially startup life is sometimes you're just resource constrained. Mm -hmm. So you have to also factor in like how much bandwidth does your team have? We would love to make everything a, a tier one launch that we think is really relevant, but we don't always have the bandwidth. And so then you have to have the conversation internally. Okay. 
what are the trade-offs, like which one is more important and which one are we going to put more resourcing into? Because a product launch is not just the product team, not just the product marketing team. You need brand and sometimes demand gen is involved, like the whole marketing team and support, customer success. You know, there's a lot of people and resourcing involved and you have to balance that kind of like boring internal resourcing stuff with what's more important, which is your customers. But the reality is you have to think about both. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's really a smart call out too. And I've typically just put guardrails around the tiers in terms of what we're going to actually launch in a quarter, in a year even. So I'd have like tier zero would be my biggest one of the year. And there would be one, maybe two, if it was kind of a banner year, just because yeah, even if it's not resources from your budget for all the channels that you're trying to promote on or the content marketing that you need, it's also resources of your time what your customers can actually understand and digest. You can't just launch something, you know, huge every month. So I think that's a really good call out that those constraints are really important from a resource perspective, but you can also kind of just put them on (laughs) to make sure you have a sanity check for yourself too. Yeah, the attention span of your customers is also really important to consider. And that's where I would add one nuance. Like even though your product team might think of, you know, these three products or features that they're launching as distinct to your users, you could bundle that in one message and one kind of like value prop or like what is the story that you can tell to actually bundle these things. And then the launch you're actually launching multiple features or it's a roundup of a bunch of features, but it's like, what's the moment? What's the story? That becomes a bit more difficult and nuanced and you have to, you know, the sooner you have the product roadmap, the better to actually be able to craft and bundle those kind of launches. But yeah. That's a really good point. And you can bundle them based on theme or functionality or motivation or whatever works. But yeah, that's a great way to combine the resources and make the deliverable a little bit more understandable to your customer versus a bunch of seemingly random things. So it just kind of helps them have this like cognitive connection, like, oh, they're doing a lot in the video space or they're doing a lot in the communication space or whatever your theme ends up being. So that's such a good call out. We're talking about bundling a little bit now, but what about pricing and packaging for a new launch? How do you typically roll something like that out? So at Loom, we're a product-led growth company. So our model is kind of freemium. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the features that we build, we default to giving away for free, but we have over time become more sophisticated on how we package you know, more upmarket. As we've matured, we are moving up market and we have more enterprise features. Some are really obvious. It's like some sort of very security admin feature. We actually have a team that builds for our enterprise customers. So in many ways, it's obvious. It'll either be an enterprise feature or like this is just core to video messaging. And so we give it away for free. But we are trying to be more thoughtful about it as we mature as a company. And we do have a pricing and packaging philosophy internally that is rooted in 
what our customers value and who our customers are. And so that framework helps us. And usually the product manager, when they're writing their PRD, they should be thinking about pricing and packaging at that moment, not as an afterthought, because it's like, this should be a strategic decision on like, is this a revenue driver or is this a growth driver and why are we building it? And then our audience differs a little bit across our plans. And so we should know that stuff upfront and the framework helps for whenever it's a little bit more nuanced when it's not obvious because most of the time it's obvious. So yeah, I would say like, ideally you're doing it at the PRD ideation phase. You should always be thinking about what user problem are you solving? And so directionally, you should already know what plan it's going in. But then the framework helps for more kind of nuanced decisions. And then sometimes we don't make a decision until later, but that's not ideal because it just means like the go-to-market plan is more rushed and complicated, but that's the reality of startups. Sometimes you just don't know until a bit later. Totally. Well, thank you. That is super interesting to hear about and connecting the dots on all your messaging and product launch expertise. So thank you. We're going to move into the rapid fire now. So starting off, who have been your strongest product marketing mentors? Yeah, so I would say it was actually my two managers at Loom, Matt Hodges, who I started the role with back in 2020. He worked at Atlassian and at Intercom. So he's just like a well-known person in product marketing. Jasmine uh, Jom, who was my last interview, actually also mentioned him as a mentor. You're saying he's a PMM celebrity. So yes, yes. he's <laughs> Exactly. He's the notorious Matt Hodges and he's back at Atlassian now. And then Rebecca Klein, who also managed me at Loom, who has a kind of broader experience, a lot of experience with growth and just across marketing more broadly. So she brought kind of like a different perspective for me and product marketing. So both of them, I would say, have been awesome and I still keep in touch with both of them. That's awesome. Well, I know that this is hard to boil down, but what is one thing that has been really important in terms of growing your career? Yeah. So I feel like product marketing is more well understood these days and people choose it as a career. I started out in a more meandering way, started in product marketing, did a bit of business development. And so I actually, to answer this question, go to something that outside of work, which is my improv experience. Because I think what improv made me realize is that the details of how you got to where you got or where you're going is less important than having like conviction in yourself and understanding your strengths and weaknesses and that kind of thing. So I think EQ and your confidence and your conviction are more important than like overanalyzing your career. And so that improv unlocked that for me. And I just wish I had started it sooner. Wow. I'm going to have to do that. (laughs) (laughs) I wanted to ask relatedly to this question, how did you get to where you are? What's your path? Yeah. So I started my career, I studied journalism and I wanted to be actually like a newsreader, which now I joke at Loom because I'm like, oh, we're kind of reading the news when we're recording (laughs) (laughs) internally. So I studied journalism at the University of Sydney in Australia, but then I discovered PR and I thought it was like, I always loved business and building company, the idea of building companies. So I liked that PR was like the journalism of business kind of thing. 
So I went into PR and then I moved to the US. So I had been doing PR for about three years and I moved to the US and I had already decided I wanted to get out of PR because I still love helping with PR and I do that at Loom, working with Emily, sometimes helping her. But what I realized is I want to be more core to the business, whereas PR is kind of like if there's a chronology, it comes at the end of the product lifecycle. And so I wanted to be more central to the business. And so I kind of accidentally ended up in BD, so business development. I was working for the Australian government. I was excited about tech. I had these communication skills and I was running our foreign office in San Francisco and helping US companies expand to Australia and Australian tech companies enter the market here. And so I kind of got like stuck in that role because it was so fun and I don't regret it. And I learned so much and I holistically understood business. But after that, I was like, okay, I've had all this great experience. I've done PR, I've done BD and government, but where am I going with all of this? And as a storyteller, I'm finding it hard to tell my own story. And so I actually took a sabbatical, I quit the government, started improv, and I just reevaluated like, what is it that I want to do? And I went to product school because I was like, I am just drawn to business. And that's the direction I had. I'm like, I just want to be closer to the core of the business. And I did a few interviews to actually be a PM. And I almost, I like made it to the final round of several like really cool companies. And then I was like, oh my God, there's a job called product marketing that (laughs) nicely packages everything I already know. And I don't have to pivot my career. I just have to repackage it. And I still get to be closer to the product. And so it's funny because it was like a pricing and packaging of my own career. (laughs) And so, yeah, I just decided to abandon the PM thing. I was like, I don't really want to deal with engineering scoping, but I do like the product side of it. And I can use all the skills that I've already built that I've spent a lot of time developing. And that's how I ended up in product marketing. I love it. Well, we're so happy you did and you got to share all of your amazing insights with us today. I feel like I learned so much about improv and product (laughs) launching and more. So thank you so much, Julia, for being here today. It was such a pleasure to get to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Really enjoyed chatting with you. This show is produced by ShareBird, the knowledge sharing platform for the fastest growing teams. It's the place to get on-demand answers to your questions and learn from leaders in the top of their field. Want more advice and insights? Head to sharebird.com. We'll also link Julia's AMA in the show notes. Don't forget to subscribe and share Women in Product Marketing with someone you love. Shout out to our sponsor, Clue. That's Clue with a K. The leading competitive enablement platform for product marketers who drive revenue for their business. 